Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. My name is Gretchen. And I'm Lee. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about (gasps) Lizzie Borden. My murder wife. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the most well-known person so far other than like Anne Bonny. Just iconic. Oh, don't you mean uh, part part two of my OT3? Sorry, part three of my OT3 between Anne Bonny and Betsy Smith and now Lizzie Borden. Right. Yes. (laughs) We are are rounding out the trio. Finally. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. If uh, somehow you've been living under a rock in terms of like popular culture references and you don't know who Lizzie Borden was um, or what the heck we're talking about. Surprise, we're going to go into a whole bunch of detail, but in general, she was a lady in 19th century New England who was part of a scandalous murder trial. And you probably are familiar with the the schoolyard chant, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. It was a huge, incredibly sensationalized trial, and she ended up getting acquitted, and she's since been uh, relegated to the annals of crazy, awesome feminist and true crime history. So right. She, excited. I mean, aside from, I would say, like, O.J. Simpson, she might be one of the most famous, like, true crime stories in America. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's actually, um, there was a, there's actually a book that takes both of those things and kind of, like, brings the facts together on them. Oh, And it's like, oh, here's all of these different similarities. It's really interesting. Um... A person named Spike Trotman on Twitter did a whole um, a whole Twitter thread on Lizzie Borden and then closed it out with, like, the back of this one book. And it has, like, Lizzie Borden and O.J. Simpson. Here are the vague facts about the cases that are very, you know, that line up. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so one might reasonably ask why, why we're talking about Lizzie Borden. And, and, you'll find out. Sneak <laughs> 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 peeks. Gotcha. <laughs> the other reason that we decided to talk about Lizzie Borden now is by the time this episode comes out, the, there will be a new film called Lizzie, starring Chloe Sevigny and Kristen Stewart, which is based or Kristen Stewart, which is based on Lizzie Borden's story. So that's the, the other reason why we're doing this. Was so when this is released, time warp, woo, uh, woo. Monday, last Friday, <laughs> uh, Lizzie <laughs> will have come out. So we decided we wanted to be timely and talk about Lizzie Borden. Yes, very exciting. It's also a nice like kind of runner up, you know, precursor to Halloween, which. Yes. Want to start start getting in the spoopy spirit early. Oh yeah, I am I am a Halloween gay, so yes. <laughs> same. <laughs> I'm I'm excited to go to Target and Oh my gosh. Get the get the awesome uh, Halloween stuff. Yes. yes anyway. Yes, yes. <laughs> um so yeah. We should probably do some content warnings, right? Yeah, content warnings. Um just a heads up, there's probably gonna be some discussion of violence and murder. Murder. Um uh, murder. murder. Obviously, I mean, if you want to hear all the details, all the gory, gory details of the Borden murders, this is not going to be the place to hear those. You can listen to 
pretty much any true crime podcast to hear those things so you don't have to worry about us going into graphic depictions of violence but again you know this is a murder story so we are going to be talking about violence uh, there will also be a brief mention of potential incest so we will as usual give you content warnings in the show notes for time codes so you can skip over that yep yep that'll be pretty brief so this is a people focused episode so we are going to start with a discussion of the social historical context, then go into a bio, and then move straight into how, uh, why we think they're gay, and followed up with our how gay were they, which is our personal rankings about how likely it is that they weren't straight. Yeah. Do we have any new business or announcements? I mean, if you've been listening to the few episodes before, we launched a Patreon, we launched a store, we've got cool new things coming to the store, or possibly already there, time warp again, look into it, we'll talk about it again at the end. But yeah, we've got a lot of information, so we're gonna <laughs> we're surprise. Gonna, I bet y'all are shocked. <laughs> we wrote another twenty-page outline, and that's after I adjusted the margins. Uh, sorry, y'all. So we're gonna we're gonna dive right in. So let's let's get started with our main topic of Lizzie Borden took a labris. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That was great. That was such a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't pass it up. <laughs> so we're going to start with a brief discussion, hopefully brief discussion, of late 19th century New England society and culture, uh, because that's important for understanding her trial and especially for understanding why she was acquitted. So mm -hmm. the late 1890s were a transitional time period in American history. The Civil War had ended in 1865, and most historians would say that the Reconstruction Era of the South from 63 to 77 had failed to fully transform the Confederate States, and thus itself was a failure. The Gilded Age of Westward expansion and statehood was reaching its end by the end of the 19th century, which was leading to the modern era of American power in the world, given you know things like industrialization, the invention of the railroad, and, and all of that stuff going on. So this is a time of great change, a time of great transition in the, in the 1890s. The largely rural or agricultural homogenous society was transforming to a more urban, industrial, and diverse one in the cities. It's an era that sees increased literacy and education for the middle class and a heightened sense of modernism and transition, which was not felt again until the 1920s after World War I. This is especially true of the East Coast, which seemed at the time to be kind of sandwiched between this like growing urbanity of the big cities and this more like genteel time reflective of Victorian sentiments, especially Victorian England. So there are lots of changing cultural values and traditions. The traditional family came under scrutiny and there were increasingly more progressive views of temperance, sexuality, and women's suffrage. So all in all, it was a very different time with a very different views about women, especially from the post-Civil War era and the preceding few decades. Yeah, next we're going to talk a little bit about Fall River, Massachusetts, which is where Lizzie Borden was from. Mm -hmm. And then we'll come back around and talk about women in Victorian society, which <laughs> is, is, <laughs> is not fun, but I'm going to do That's it. Not Super <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so after 1870, Fall River, Massachusetts kind of exploded in population and industry. There were 20 new corporations and a population increase of about 20,000 people. It was the third largest city in Massachusetts at the time. By 1880, it had rivaled Manchester, Great Britain, and it became the second leading producer of cotton textiles in the world. And almost the entire cotton fabric production in the U.S. was actually concentrated around Fall River, leading to the rise of a class of new Nouveau riche, you know, young 
you know, young money. If you've ever read The Great Gatsby, right? Money, old money, big um tensions there. So basically, this you know wasn't just like a backwater town. It was the thriving and growing manufacturing town, but it was still one with kind of like a small town feel social flavor. Right. Part of what made the Lizzie Borden trial and murders so sensational was that this was a like culturally thriving urban city. And it was an event that actually had like wealthy new money families involved. Mm -hmm. People that Victorian society had deemed above such things as brutal murder. It went to show that even wealthy people could suffer this, you know, this brutality and downfall. It was a big, big shock. Right. Yeah. And Fall River itself was divided into pretty restrictive social groups based on class, ethnicity, and religion. The elite, the so-called elite of Fall River society would have been Yankee heritage. So like what some might call like native born Americans, though still white. (laughs) We're not talking native Americans or like first peoples. We're talking about like white families who were born. So not immigrants, (laughs) Um, Yankee heritage, Protestant and owners of like the industries in the area. So owners of cotton mills, textile mills and things like that. According to Trey Wyatt from the life legend and mystery of Lizzie Borden, Families like the Durfees, the Braytons, the Davils, the Chases, the Remingtons, and the Bordens were at the heart of every business, church service, cultural event, and election. And these leading families maintained control and status via marriages and business arrangements. Yeah, so uh, lower classes included, you know, as we said, like native-born American families, still white, unable to get a marriage match or business connections with the elite families, yet even they held more prestige and wealth than the immigrants. The increase in industry in the preceding decades had led to an influx of Irish Catholic and French Canadian and Portuguese immigrants who worked primarily in the textile mills. So 55% of the workforce was immigrant child laborers. Mm-hmm. Yay. Industrialization is great. <laughs> um, yeah. So these immigrants inhabited geographic sectors or ghettos, which is a common urban settlement practice in New England at the time. So these neighborhoods were closer to the water with the richer folks occupying the hills further away from the mills. So they had the opportunity to kind of literally be up on high. Right. Like literally upward mobility, like (laughs) in this town. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like it reminds me of like if you've ever seen the cartoon The Oblongs. How it was literally like all the rich people in the community were up on a literal hill and then the Oblongs family is like down in this oh. tiny swampy ditch. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's an easy uh, easy little connection there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Borden family occupied a unique place in the social structure of the town. Andrew Borden, Lizzie's father, descended from a, quote, lesser branch of the prominent Borden family. And so they lived on... Second Street on the same plane as like middle class Irish families in business flats, not at the top of the heap, like they're more elite cousins. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into this more when we talk about uh, Lizzie's biography, but Andrew specifically refused to move to the hill despite his wealth, which placed his daughters and his family in general in a strange position. They were isolated from their Irish Catholic neighbors because of barriers of class and ethnicity, but they were effectively barred from mingling with the elite society because they weren't physically close to them. Mm-hmm. As an example, when we get into you know details of the murder trial, Lizzie and her sister basically, well, Liz- Lizzie preferred to wait for the Protestant Dr. Bowen to return home when she discovered Andrew's body rather than go to the Irish Catholic Dr. Kelly or French-Canadian Dr. Chagnon, both of whom were neighbors. Right, right. Like they were, she could have gone to or sent Bridget to like a different doctor, 
But like that, like it's just an example of like how isolated like these like social classes were from each other. That like even when you find your dad's body, like apparently like brutally murdered, you're like, I gotta wait for the Protestant. I can't go see the Irish Catholic doctor because who does that? Yeah, she literally sent the maid Bridget out to go get the res- the respectable white doctor and like waited. Bridget like waited on the porch for like Doctor Bowen to get home. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, they were very like socially isolated and as like Lizzie didn't really have a lot of friends because I mean, she couldn't really have a lot of friends based on their location. So women in Victorian England. Ah, okay, this is not fun to talk about, but we got to talk about it. Clearly the period of Victorian like England is named after Queen Victoria, but there were really strong ties between the East Coast of the United States to England during this time period, um, you know, attempting to like ape British society. There were lots of trade interests. So even though it seems weird to apply like a British period of history to American society, like it, it made a lot of sense given the ties between especially New England and uh, regular England, uh, Great Britain. <laughs> yeah, the sensibilities were essentially the same. Yes. So there was a similar social sociocultural period in America, especially in the urban and ep- economic centers of the East Coast. So as mentioned, it was a time for great art, literature, and enjoyment for middle and upper classes given the Industrial Revolution. They have now insane amounts of leisure time. But at the same time, the urban centers were drawing both skilled and unskilled labor to cities where they were paid barely above subsistence level wages, sometimes less. And such situations of abject poverty gave rise to drastically new political theories and is also reflected in the art and literature of the time, which is both tragic and fantastic. It was a time of great, like, sharp social contrasts, which made its way into, like, artistic contrasts. You have you know, people like Emily Dickinson are publishing their poems at this time. Henry James, Stephen Crane, Kate Chopin. There's this like deep sense of both wonder in like the change and transformation and the new things that are happening, as well as confusion at how like sharply divided and contrasting society was. Things like Freud's theories are gaining in popularity. Ooh, Freud didn't Freud. really like women. <laughs> he was a horrible what? misogynist. <laughs> Safe to say, having Freud's theories be on the rise really isn't great for women. Wait, are you saying that the man who came up with the concept of penis envy wasn't a big fan of women? <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. Maybe he just hated women a little bit. Actually, a lot. So popular, it was popular to compare women's burgeoning sexuality, or rather the recognition that women had sexuality. Not that it was burgeoning. It's always been there. With their manner of dress, which included like the binding of breasts and having like a very like tall thin like flat silhouette that was like covered um fully covered so there was this like correlation between like styles and women's sexuality and hey that's always been the case (laughs) judging women based on how they dress uh so as i said this was a time of great leisure and women in the middle and upper classes were the leisure bearers and the status symbols of their middle class working husbands part of being a in Victorian society was like, as a woman, you didn't have a lot to do because that meant that your husband made a lot of money. So there's a sharp contrast between the workers who are joining a middle-class caste system that gave women, on the one hand, more access to education, reading, career paths, with the, at the same time, stifling perspective of women as primarily caregivers, homemakers, and these like demure, passive women incapable of violence, which is something that we'll just about to get into. So you have like those who are gaining more money are suddenly entering a like a way of viewing womanhood in it that's seems f- sharply contrasting. Women have more leisure to explore their education and career options at the same time as society is telling them like 
no, you can't do that. It's not appropriate for women to be outside the home if you're middle or upper class. So the view of women as nonviolent, there are lots of bases for it. One of which is the idea that women were both evolutionarily weaker or less fit because you also have people like Darwin around this time or just developments in what, you know, they would call science that believed that women were just like biologically less fit and therefore less violent. But at the same time, that meant that they were kind of biologically suited to be caring for children and the view that like only like the strong like male brain and physiology was capable of being assertive and business minded and all that bullshit (laughs) also believe that like women were more prone to like illness because they were you know quote unquote weaker especially (laughs) hysteria Hysteria. (laughs) yay a woman's womb makes her crazy but i mean to be fair it brought us vibrators so there you go that is true (laughs) thank you if there if there's one good thing that comes out (laughs) of the concept of hysteria it is the advent of vibrators that's probably an entire episode we could get into oh my gosh definitely (laughs) right i'm sure the history chicks have something about that oh i'm sure they do we should look that up so yeah there was something both like pathological and abnormal about women during this time period uh at the same time and contradictory which is what's so amusing to me if i'm going to to laugh at this instead of just be horrified women were also given a kind of pride of place in raising children based on especially for those who are religious that women were like designed by god to be caregivers and nurturers of children due to their innate moral superiority despite physical or psychological weaknesses so like they might not be as smart or as strong as men but they're like more morally pure than dudes so like Mm -hmm. they gotta raise the babies victorian women obeyed the like social pressure for self-abnegation in exchange for like what was deemed like feminine influence over their children and husbands it's a very like separate but equal kind Mm -hmm. of thing just not really in a positive way like men were their sphere was like running businesses the government women's like a woman's sphere was in the home women were deemed like morally superior which provided Mm -hmm. an impetus for keeping them at home where their moral superiority would give them influence over the raising of children and keeping their husbands like greed and avarice in check so they were considered like the guardians of private morality and public virtue except they were also like confined to their home i have so many head of gobbler feels right now Why? Just it's it just always like if I if I am ever thinking about Victorian sensibilities when it comes to like women's sphere being in the home and the idea of like women leaving the home and abandoning the children and their moral responsibilities. It just it's you know, it goes back to Ibsen for me. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. It's like this weird like simultaneously sounds like really nice because like oh wow like they value women they believe like women should like be influencing children and influencing their husbands but it's also a really limiting one only in this particular way right like it values a certain kind of woman and certain characteristics within women but like also like by placing her morally on a pedestal also sets women up to like if they then fail that moral standard to be like utterly demonized. So mm-hmm. this very like Madonna whore. If anyone has listened to like my like analysis over on the fundamentals, myself and my fellow editors Kylie and Julia talk about that a lot, like the Madonna whore complex. Like you're either like perfect or you're like devilish. And Victorian society definitely leaned more towards the like women ought to be like pure and perfect. And these, like, bearers of moral responsibility, which Mm -hmm. was basically just a way to keep them contained within the home. 
mm-hmm. because it fails to grant them any legal, economic, or political agency or authority of any kind. According to Robertson, who is an article, uh, we'll link her article in our show notes. Excellent article, provides a lot of social context, says, The doctrine of separate spheres provided women with culturally sanctioned authority over the domestic sphere at the expense of their participation in the public sphere. The biological model of femininity provided a further rationale for women's exclusion from the male domain outside the home. Religious doctrines legitimated women's submission to parental, specifically paternal, authority and lauded self-abnegation and charitable works as the peculiar talent and proper domain of women. Yeah. It was also a time when the science at the time was used to keep upper and middle class women in subservient positions in the home, even as it gave them more tools to expand their career and education. So again, we have that weird dichotomy. So all the while industrialization is pushing lower and working class women into unsafe labor practices. Mm -hmm. Working class women and immigrants were deemed lesser and could never hope to rise to the position that even a spinster, which we'll get into what that means, uh, like Lizzie Borden enjoyed. Class birthright bestowed a layer of idealized Victorian femininity upon middle class women that only the most determined of depravity could shake. Mm-hmm. Bridget Sullivan, on the other hand, who was the Borden's live-in maid, would never be a lady because she was an Irish Catholic immigrant and a servant. So, in fact, this class distinction is the actual reason why Bridget was first suspected of the murders and why Borden's prosecution was so reluctant and why she was ultimately acquitted. Mm -hmm. Nowhere is the struggle to deal with a middle-class woman murderer in Victorian New England more visible than in the post-trial conversations about the murders throughout America. For Fall River and much of America, American society, the Borden murders were used to decry the, quote, modern evils of immigration, social disorder, and feminine transgression. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Burgeoning feminist movements, however, actually ended up using the trial to call for a truly representative judicial system that would allow Borden to be tried by a jury of her peers. And actually noted suffragist and lecturer Mary Livermore actually visited her in jail. So that gives us a nice kind of roundabout context of what we're moving into right before we talk about Lizzie and and the murders and the trial themselves. Yes. Speaking of which, yeah, let's get into it. Who was Lizzie Borden? Who? Who indeed? Hmm. She was born Lizzie Andrew Borden on July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts to Sarah Anthony Morse and Andrew Jackson Borden. <laughs> I wonder if he was named after Andrew Jackson. Uh, probably. <laughs> yeah. She was the third child in a family of three girls. The oldest daughter, Emma, was nine years older than Lizzie. And the middle daughter, Alice, died at three years old sometime in between Emma's birth and when Lizzie was born. Their mother, Sarah, died when Lizzie was three, leaving Emma to be kind of like the woman of the household at age 12. Though that didn't last very long because Andrew remarried three years later to Lizzie's stepmother, Abby Durfee Gray. And uh, if you recognize the name, Durfee was another one of those, like, upper-class, like, elite families. So here's another, like, business, like, social connection being made. Who was who was also a spinster, which we'll get into. She was 37 years old and had been previously unmarried and never had children by the time she married Andrew. According to the Boston Herald, published around the time of the murder, As a child, Lizzie was a very sensitive nature, inclined to be non-communicative with new acquaintances, And this characteristic has tenaciously clung to her all through life and has been erroneously interpreted. Her sister, being older, was a constant guide and an idolized companion. An unusual circumstance is that of her having practically no choice of friends until she attained womanhood. Which, you know, we described was because they occupied this weird place in Fall River where, like, 
Of course they didn't have any friends. Like, Yeah. <laughs> Lizzie also apparently was, like, some of her closest friends were animals. You know, she was a big animal lover throughout her entire life. Partly probably because of the absence of human friends. Right, <laughs> right. Like, you make friends where you can. Friends with yeah. the animals and such. <laughs> yeah. So, Andrew... Her father was a former undertaker, and he made his money selling furniture and caskets, and he also ended up becoming a prosperous property developer. He also made a lot of money in the textiles industry, which we talked about was a huge, you know, huge income source uh, for many people in Fall River. He was described as kind, but not affectionate. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit at the top, is that though he was quite wealthy, he was known to be incredibly frugal. And Lizzie and her older sister, Emma, lived in their home with him and Abby in an environment of extreme penny-pinching. So although the family was wealthy, he forced the household to essentially scrimp on every expense. He is basically, like, rich dude who didn't want to give up any of his hoarded wealth. Um, Mm -hmm. So, like, he thought of modern amenities as useless extravagances. Even though indoor plumbing and electricity were common accommodations for wealthy families at the time, the Borden household didn't have electricity, and they only had one toilet in the entire house, which was in the cellar. It was rarely used. And the rest of the house had chamber pots that would get, like, emptied into a slop pail every day. Super fun. Town rumors even posited that Andrew was so miserly that he would, uh, different sources say that he would bend the legs of the deceased. Some say that he would cut off the feet of the deceased to basically like save a few inches of lumber cost and make shorter uh, coffins. So he was not a well-liked dude, but he was still willing to pay for Lizzie's grand tour of Europe in 1890. And uh, some sources say that he was, if he was going to be playing favorites, Lizzie was his kind of, you know, favorite over Emma. And Lizzie sometimes really tried to like get his favor. Mm -hmm. They, uh, They had a strict religious upbringing and attended Central Congregational Church. Lizzie was heavily involved in church activities and Christian organizations. So, for example, even though her allowance was only $200 a year, which is roughly $5,500 in today's cash, adjusting for inflation, she saved or donated most of the money that she got for her allowance. She took up with the Christian Temperance Society upon her return from her grand tour. Uh, They even sent her letters of support when she was imprisoned and on trial, which I think is just lovely, that show of (laughs) solidarity. She was also a volunteer teacher, secretary treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society, and a dabbler in the Ladies' Fruits and Flower Mission. Such club work was one of the only ways that middle-class women could engage in reform, have social time with like-minded women, and the opportunity p- to potentially perform reform younger women who didn't initially agree with them. You know, as we mentioned in like the the women in Victorian society, this is this is one of the few ways she was she could exert any kind of influence or agency that was socially acceptable in in Victorian society. The marriage rate rose in the 1890s, but the average age actually fell to 22. So Borden, at 32 years old at the time of the murders, would have been considered a spinster. Yet she also gained a degree of social and cultural legitimacy because of her, like, club activities and involvement with the church by being what they would call, quote, a Protestant nun (laughs) working with charities. So even, like, this would have... Rather than kind of being like something she would have been pitied for, like she would have gained like a sense of social standing despite being unmarried because of her like charitable involvement. Um, It was one of the few ways that she could kind of get the social capital that she seemed to want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Lizzie and Emma's home life actually reflects many of the tensions of Victorian middle-class life for women and was otherwise dysfunctional. They described their father as overbearing and the relationship with Abby was very strained. It was, you know, relatively cold. Um, They called her Mrs. Borden 
and essentially believe that she was like a gold digger after their father's wealth, even though she herself, you know, came from a relatively wealthy family. So, (laughs) but (laughs) uh, Lizzie and her sister's relationships with their father was only conversationally functional when it came to the business. On the one hand, he was willing to include his daughters in his business ventures, which not all Victorian men at the time would have done, believing that women weren't cut out for business. But on the other hand, he was unable to have any other kind of relationship with his daughters, showcasing the sharp divide present between men and women at the time due the belief that women were, if not lesser, separate but equal beings when it came to intellectual and economic acumen. So, like, as a man, like, he wouldn't have had a strong relationship with them because, I mean, they're his children, but they're his daughters, so... Yeah, like, you didn't really have (laughs) that close relationship. No, like, his wife, his second wife, Abby, would have been supposedly, like, the, the one who was in charge of, like, the home life, but if the daughters didn't like her, then... yeah. Yeah, she didn't do a lot of rearing of no, them. or mentoring, um, yep. Yeah. The daughters lived in one, I mean, like, actually physically manifesting this separation. The daughters lived in one area of the house, and Andrew and Abby lived in another. And during the murder trial, years later, the family's maid, Bridget, would actually testify that Lizzie and Emma even rarely ate meals with their parents. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is this is where we get start getting into the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Lizzie was a kleptomaniac, <laughs> super duper, and a bad one. Yeah, really, like like not effective or sneaky at all about it. <laughs> it was like an open secret in Fall River, <laughs> which like maybe like there's a really strong case to be made that like perhaps because of the religious and, and and culture required like submission of her, she was herself her father's property for all intents and purposes in Victorian society. And yet had very little property of her own because her father would have owned everything. So, like, taking things that, like, quote-unquote, like, didn't belong to her, like, may have been a form of protest. The only one available to her was, like, well, I don't own any of my things and, like, I'm an object. So, like, and, like, she was so (laughs) bad that when she went shopping, like, shopkeepers, like, actually knew to, like, make a list of, like, things that went missing after she was in the shop and would just, like, send the bill to Andrew and he would pay for it. <laughs> yeah. A year before the murder, Abby Borden's jewelry drawer was quote unquote burgled. And then when the police came, none of the women said they'd heard a sound, and Lizzie led them on an excited tour of the house, showing them the downstairs cellar door that had apparently been forced with a nail. The thief, however, could only have entered Abby's room through Lizzie's bedroom. So there you go. So like afterward, Andrew would actually lock his and Abby's door at night and leave the key in the hallway in plain sight to signal he knew Lizzie had likely done it. Like, that's some passive, aggressive fantasticness. He was such a shit. He was a total shit. Yeah. Especially, like, in later life. Like, reading some of these stories, like, not long before the murder, I'm like, what an asshole. Yeah, like, no wonder. So, word of the theft was actually kept out of the papers until Lizzie herself mentioned it during the murder investigation. And, like, creepily, Andrew would actually lock his women up in the house when he left for work in the morning, himself with the only key. I don't like this. No! Like, that was the part when I was reading about it. I was like, what a fucker! Yeah. Like, he literally was thinking of, like, this is my property, have to protect it, including my women, gotta lock them in the house while I'm gone at work. Yeah. Yeah. Dick. <laughs> so yeah, here's here's your first instance of content warning. If you don't want to hear 
about one of the things that we mentioned before you could skip over. So there is there's speculation that there could in terms of like motivations for the murders. There have been discussion among historians that there could possibly have been incest or other sexual tensions involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lizzie's uncle said some quite coded things in the trial about her and her father being quote too close and there are actually nail marks in the door between Abby and Andrew's room and Lizzie's that seem to imply that Lizzie had nailed the door shut. As they're on her side, it seems strange that this would be to protect from her kleptomania, and her bed was also positioned to block the door from being opened. Just kind of some telling, potentially telling things. And there was even, it was this was something that was even like floated at the time of the trial. So this isn't just like current historians like looking back, mm-hmm. like at the time of the trial when things were going on, like even there were whispers even at the time that this was potentially something that was going on behind the scenes. Yeah. So much of this entire thing is is rumors, whispers, conjecture. There's, you know, not a lot of actual, like, facts that are super, super set in stone about this whole story. Which makes a lot of sense because, I mean, it's, it's upper-class Victorian society and these were things they just wouldn't talk about. Like, Lizzie yeah. barely talked through her whole trial because she just wouldn't talk about it. And it's that's mm-hmm. not unusual. Robertson, again, summarizes Lizzie really well, saying... Too old to attend one of the new women's colleges and too wealthy for the mills, Lizzie Borden, like other middle-class women of her generation, was relegated to unproductive marginality, free to enjoy her leisure in the presumed comforts of her father's home. She's just like, she's she's a woman who's whose leisure lifestyle could be construed as a prison mm-hmm. in many yeah. ways. And, you know, kind of speaking of, Lizzie and Emma kind of lived their lives relatively quietly and unassuming, hoping that with their obedience and reference to Andrew, that he would set aside enough of his wealth for them to live comfortably after his death. They were really kind of hoping that they'd get a fair fair amount in his will. Yeah, because, I mean, in Victorian society, it was necessary that like unmarried women depended on some kind of like either eventually finding someone that they could marry like Abby Durfee did with Andrew or like hoping that who that their father would leave them enough money after he died for them to take care of themselves. They were utterly dependent on him for everything for money especially. Both Lizzie and Emma were unmarried, some saying that Andrew refused to allow the like refused to allow them to get married even though there were potential suitors but again we don't actually know because yeah (laughs) just speculation yep other than the generally cold nature of the relationships between andrew and abby and the daughters there were some specific instances leading up to the murders that contributed to increasingly mounting tensions among the family so one instance is that in 1892 apparently andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet Ah. believing that they were, like, attracting local children to their home so that they could, like, hunt the pigeons. And Lizzie, who, as I said before, was a lifetime lover of animals, she had recently built a roost for the pigeons, and it was recounted that she was incredibly upset with her father over killing them. Although, you know, again, a lot of conjecture, hearsay, the validity of these claims has been somewhat disputed, but I thought it was interesting to note. Mm. Um, But by far, the factor contributing most to growing tension was... (laughs) Andrew's decision to... So this is like this miserly, miserly guy. So you have, like, Andrew, who, you know, had been so frugal to not even allow his family indoor plumbing, suddenly decides to gift an entire house to Abby's sister. So, like, Lizzie and Emma had probably expected to inherit the house and live off the rental income, because becoming property-holding landladies would have been an opportunity for them to socially climb. And so they were like furious that their inheritance is being given away to essentially strangers, which 
fair. Um, right? Like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> yeah. Like, suddenly you're like, yeah, I'm just going to give this house to somebody none of you guys know. And then, like, he did it again. <laughs> so a few years later, in July 1892, Andrew was preparing to give yet another of Abby's relatives another piece of property, which was a small farm. And so a large argument followed, which prompted both Lizzie and Emma to leave and take extended vacations with family in New Bedford a week before the murders. And after returning to Fall River, you know, Emma came straight home, but Lizzie actually stayed in a local rooming house for a few nights before returning home. So this is this is the, the environment in the family that is leading straight up to the murders. Yes. The murders. Murder. I feel like I want, like, Keith Morrison from Dateline <laughs> to be like, yes. a tale of murder. murder. Sorry, I love watching Dateline. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> Especially <laughs> Keith Morrison. He's my favorite. <laughs> a few things that were, like, immediately, like, a couple days before the, the murder case that also could have potentially, they're, they're interesting to note. So a few days before the murder, the entire family, including Bridget, the live-in maid, had been violently ill. A family friend suspected the family that it was the family's habit of leaving like mutton out on the stove for days for use in their meals. The doctor said it was boiled fish, but Abby actually feared poison because Andrew wasn't a popular dude. Gee, I wonder why he wasn't a popular dude. Oh boy. Abby thought that maybe someone was trying to kill him. There's also some evidence that the temperature had been like above average hot leading up to or even the day of either like purely from the heat index or like heat plus humidity. Um, there had been like a heat wave in the preceding week, like up in the 90s, which in Massachusetts is pretty warm. Um, and remember, like they don't have air conditioning or like yeah. refrigeration, refrigeration and they're wearing like heavy. They're wearing more clothes than we typically do. There's been speculation about that. Don't uh, don't actually know like whether or not it was hot enough, but like there are. I mean, if you think about it, there is evidence that, like, crime spikes when it gets hot. So, I'm not saying heat stroke made her do it, but... <laughs> I mean, it's, like, an interesting thing to think about. Like, when, <laughs> when it's warm outside, people's tempers are shorter. People are less likely to be, like, in good moods. So, it's yep. an interesting thing. So, so what happened? August 4th, 1892. <laughs> Andrew went into town to do his rounds at the bank, post office, and market... Returning home around 10.45 a.m. Sorry, I'm trying to do Keith Morrison. I should probably stop. <laughs> so yeah, he went into town to do his rounds. Came back at around 10.45. Now, due to Lizzie's kleptomania, important to note, this house was one of the most like secure houses mm -hmm. in town. The front door had triple locks. All of the bedroom doors and all of the bureaus in the house had locks. And on the morning of the murder, Andrew actually returned home with a broken lock that he had taken into town and was actually unable to unlock his own front door like for multiple minutes. Bridget, the maid, tried to let him in but found that the drawer was jammed and claimed at trial that she heard Lizzie laughing at the top of the stairs while this was happening. Now, due to the geography of the house, like if she if she had been at the top of the stairs, she could only have come either from her own room or the guest room where Abby was later found dead. But Lizzie denied being upstairs and when asked by Andrew where Abby was, said that a servant had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Lizzie then says that she helped Andrew out of his boots to lie down even though he was found with his boots on, and told Bridget about a department store sale and encouraged her to go shopping. Mm -hmm. Bridget, instead, having been tired from cleaning windows and being sick and potentially the heat, went to lie down upstairs uh, instead of going shopping. Yeah, so Lizzie claimed that she found Andrew's body 30 minutes later, just before 11.30 a.m., and she called out to Bridget upstairs that someone had come in and killed her father. So we actually have Bridget's entire testimony at the inquest. She says... 
Then I laid down in the bed. In my judgment, I think I was there three or four minutes. The next thing was that Miss Lizzie hollered, Maggie, which is what they, what the daughters called Bridget as a nickname. Maggie, come down. I said, what is the matter? She says, come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. This might be 10 or 15 minutes after the clock struck 11, as far as I can judge. Police found Andrew's body slumped in an undersized couch in the sitting room. His face turned to the right, almost as if he'd been asleep. And then after being called down by Lizzie and discovering Andrew's body, Bridget was, as we said at the beginning, Bridget was sent by Lizzie to go get the doctor. And at that time, the commotion attracted the neighbors who ended up summoning the police. So Abby had been killed one to two hours earlier in the guest room where she had been making up the guest bed because a a family member had been visiting. And she'd been doing that when Andrew was out running errands. She was found by Bridget after returning with Dr. Bowen. Neither of the victims' faces were recognizable due to the number of the number and violence of the blows. And it was unlike what the uh, schoolyard rhyme says, it was actually about 30 strokes in total. 18 or 19 for Abby and 11 to 12 for her father. So not actually 81 wax in total, which would be a lot. <laughs> yeah. Why do, we, like, why do we teach these things to kids? Like, why is it when I was like eight <laughs> years old, I was running around like singing about like... like Lizzie Borden took an axe. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because like I actually, in my research, I, I discovered that it's actually debated whether the schoolyard chant is attributed to Mother Goose, which like fucked up, or if it was actually something that local newspapers came up with to sell more copies, which makes a lot of sense considering the sensationalism of the trial. Part of the reason why the Borden murders are such a fascination still today is that it's one of the first and most deliberately sensationalized crimes and trials in the United States. And it's a big reflection on the increasing influence of mass media. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Fake news. (laughs) Oh, no. So back to the trial. Lizzie actually gave, or prior to the trial, Lizzie gave contradictory statements about what she did or didn't hear when she arrived at home and various alibis for what she was doing. Still, the police only gave her room a cursory examination when they were there, and she wasn't even examined for bloodstains. There, so there's actually theories that she could have possibly been menstruating that day. And there's also like a lot of weird, you know, sexist bullshit about like whenever Lizzie was menstruating, she was very angry and she took it out of the family and blah, 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 blah. So she was, you know, she was having her period that day. And so the police basically overlooked things like bloody rags that she carried down from her chamber because, you know, Victorian gentlemen you're like, oh, what is this unsavory? Blah 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 blah. And she and she was an elite woman. Like, why would you suspect the the daughter of a you know of a wealthy businessman of of brutally and savagely murdering her father and stepmother? Exactly. Like, of course they overlooked it because why would why would they have any? They would have had no ability to understand like her being capable of such violence. Mm-hmm. Officers found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken and missing handle in the basement, and they suspected the latter was the murder weapon, the one with the broken handle. Um, as the break seemed fresh and looked like it had, like, a fake, uh, <laughs> like, recent application of, like, dust yeah. or ash to make it look like it had been there longer. It was speculated that the broken handle was missing because it would have had blood stains on it. And at trial, some officers claimed to have seen the broken handle in the basement as well, though others contradicted it. There's a lot of, like, contradictory witness statements in this trial. Oh, yeah. But because of the illness, the bodies had been checked for poison, but none was found. During the inquest, actually, the Borden family friend Alice Russell had testified that Lizzie was anxious that one of her father's enemies may have been threatening her family and that someone had poisoned their milk. So this idea of, like, maybe it was poison, like, came up again and again. 
That was the reason maybe why everyone was sick. The night after the murder, a police officer claims to have seen Lizzie and the family friend Alice, who had come to stay with them, entering the cellar with a kerosene lamp and a slop pail, and couldn't see what they were doing, but, like, claims they were, like, bending over a sink. (laughs) Maybe washing something? I don't know. And Lizzie was present at the inquest on August 8th, and was acting erratically. She refused to answer certain questions that might have benefited her, gave a lot of contradictory answers to others. Some speculate that this could have been a result of the morphine that she'd been given. Prior to arresting Lizzie, detectives first fixed their investigation on Bridget. Although in some sense protected by being a woman, which we'll get to this, her hold on morally upstanding Victorian femininity was more tenuous due to her working class nature and her ethnicity, which was Irish Catholic, which... At the time, you know, was there was white, and then there was Irish. So, while an axe was a, quote, man's weapon, uh, Irish women were considered strong enough to wield one. And in domestic service jobs, they often chopped wood. So she was thus, for many in Borden's social circle, the natural suspect of the crime, rather than Lizzie. Uh, Lizzie's arrest upset the ethnic and class-based notions of criminality at the time. Yeah, it was a huge shock mm-hmm. that, that Lizzie would have been erected, arrested, especially over someone like, you know, they would have said, like, well, why not arrest the, the Irish Catholic maid? Mm-hmm. She clearly would have done yeah. it. Which brings us to the trial. Lizzie was arrested on August 8th. The grand jury was called to hear testimony on November 7th, and she was indicted on December 2nd of 1892. The trial itself, though, didn't begin until June 5th, 1893. Now, five days prior to the trial's commencement on June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. This time, the victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. And the similarities between the Manchester and Borden murders were striking and noted by jurors. However, Jose Correra de Melo, a Portuguese immigrant, was later convicted of Manchester's murder in 1894 and was determined not to have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. However, like, couldn't convincingly prove the hatchet was the missing handle was the murder weapon, Prosecution claimed that the hand that dealt the blows wasn't of masculine strength, uh, which was meant to be a point in favor of Lizzie having done it, despite prevailing notions against women as perpetrators of violent crime. But they were also disfigured beyond recognition, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of blows. Yeah. Then you have things like Alice claimed to have seen Lizzie burning a blue dress in the stove <laughs> that Lizzie claimed was ruined when she brushed against wet paint. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, super legit. I regularly burn my dresses when they get painted. Oh, on them. yeah, yeah. Soup's normal. Super normal. And so one of the things that actually directly led to Lizzie's arrest and eventual like consideration of a suspect after all of the inquests about Bridget was that Lizzie actually a couple of days before the, the day before the murder tried to buy prussic acid, which was basically cyanide, supposedly to clean a sealskin cloak. And the proprietor of the pharmacy, which was one that was far away from her home and one that she had never visited, refused to sell it to her without a doctor's note, which prompted Lizzie to angrily storm out, claiming that she'd, quote, never had trouble buying it before. She eventually, this evidence was actually, like, stricken from the record and they didn't end up using it in the trial, mostly because Lizzie, I mean, Lizzie kept saying, like, no, that never happened. No, even though she was, like, ID'd by multiple witnesses, so... I just love how, like, there's so many, like, there's so many suspicious things. I know. Like, it's so suspicious. The whole, like... I've never had trouble buying it before. It's just like, okay, okay. okay honey. Yeah. Sure, sure, lady. So yeah, so the trial lasted two weeks. And on June 20th, 1893, the jury of, quote, 12 heavily mustachioed men was sent to deliberate. And it only took them 90 minutes to deliberate. And they returned with a not guilty verdict. 
So before we talk about, like, the acquittal and what happened to Lizzie after the trial, let's get a little bit into motives for the murders. Yeah, why did people think that she would have done it in the first place? Well, I mean, money was primarily the motive that people came up with. Uh, her parents' estate, adjusted for inflation, was worth $7 million, which is which is a shit ton of money. Yeah. With her father and stepmother dead, Lizzie stood to inherit everything and be an independent woman. Lizzie was also a social climber. She was an upstreet woman living in a downstreet neighborhood and really, really, really disliked her father's austerity, as we mentioned earlier. According to some of her supporters and the pre-trial interview with a woman named Ms. McGurk, Lizzie wanted to live in and socialize with the social class that she belonged to, the elite Yankee Hill crowd, rather than continue living in the middle-class business neighborhood they occupied. According to her uncle Hiram, Lizzie believed that she ought to be entertaining the way that other members of her social set were. Significantly, after the trial, Lizzie and her sister Emma buy a house on French Street, which is the highest point on the hill that they could possibly go. <laughs> so they had this desire to mingle with the social elites, which was socially acceptable to Victorian sensibilities that she would want this, just so long as she maintained the outward respect for her father. But a desire for financial independence rather than just social prominence would have threatened Victorian notions of social and familial sensibility. So that actually came up like it was a point in her trial that like people were trying to make sense of, you know, the prosecution would say, well, she, you know, wanted to be independent. That makes her a bad person. I mean, this was something that even they debated at the time was like her desire for financial independence actually made even some of her supporters really uncomfortable mm -hmm. because they expected a good Victorian woman to not want those things. Like she got, you know, $4 a week in allowance, which is like... $110 in current society. I mean, compare that to Bridget, who was paid $250, which is about $70 a week. And while, like, this allowed her to make incidental purchases, she would not have been able to support herself on, like, her allowance or her savings should her father disapprove of her. And, you know, as we've said, her his approval was expressed primarily in monetary terms. And so if he decided to cut her and Lizzie out of the will or Emma out of the will and, you know, was giving away, like, properties to, like, essentially strangers, they could stand to lose everything and be left unable to support themselves. Other potential motives. Author Victoria Lincoln believed Lizzie was epileptic and murdered them while having an ambulatory seizure of the temporal lobe. And as we said before, right, there could have been a response to alleged abuse and incest, uh, a theory that was floated at the time. There's also some other potential motives and like who committed the murders, which we'll get into very soon in our next section. But let's talk about the acquittal. Let's talk about why. Why was Lizzie acquitted? Right, because when you when you just read the fact, you're like, like she clearly did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least in my opinion, I'm like, well, that sounds super duper suspicious. Everything she does is super duper suspicious. I don't know what to tell you. Of course she did it. But Victorian society didn't want to. Couldn't couldn't believe it because it went against everything they believed in about the, like, pure, morally upright, middle-class Victorian woman. Criminal law at the time held that violent crimes, especially crimes like murder, were, like, biologically inferior crimes and more likely, huh, surprise, surprise, to be committed by, like, less evolved races and social classes, like non-white people. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Disgusting. So, like, according to these kinds of theories, which were popular at the time, female criminals were more likely to commit, like, moral impurity crimes, like becoming sex workers, or, like, they would commit crimes of, like, moral impurity rather than, like, violent murder. So, like, a violent female criminal would have been, like, only a woman who was, like, a true monster and an aberration, probably someone who was poor and not white or an immigrant could possibly, like, brutally murder someone. Mm -hmm. The board and trial demonstrates what stories her cultures wanted and expected to hear. 
The battle over the representation of Borden, the central character of the tale spun by both prosecution and defense, illustrates why her conviction was, finally, a cultural impossibility. It was, in extent, an extended reading and narrative portrayal of her womanhood. The entire trial was just like, what does it mean for Lizzie to be a Victorian woman? Either it's virtues according to Victorian society or its weaknesses. According to Edmund Lester Pearson, a true crime writer, famous for his account of the Lizzie Borden trial, to suggest that a woman of good family, of blameless life and hitherto unimpeachable character, could possibly commit two such murders is to suggest something so rare as to be almost unknown to criminology. There is something about the act of battering in the skulls of an elderly man and woman which suggests the male butcher, not the more subtle, though equally malicious, methods of the murderess. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> in short, the, the fundamental cultural anxiety at the center of the case was this. So this is another quote from Robertson. If Lizzie Borden was guilty of murdering her father and stepmother, then perhaps any apparently proper middle-class woman might be equally capable of such violence. Adding on to that, the, the fact that there was actually a complete lack of blood-stained clothing as evidence contributed to the jury's deliberations as well. Her lawyer reasoned that anyone who bludgeoned two people to death in the manner that Andrew and Abby were found must have been covered in blood following the incident, but there wasn't a drop of blood on Lizzie's clothing. This ended up being partly the heart of Lizzie's defense. The defense said that she would have had to have been, quote, stark naked while committing the murders, which, of course, was unthinkable for a virtuous Victorian woman. So it all circles back to, like, the perception of femininity and womanhood and, like, what was considered socially acceptable and whether or not someone of her station could could even commit such a crime. How could a wealthy protestant yankee woman brutally murder someone mm -hmm. yeah and like there was a big there was a great deal of sensationalism you brought that up earlier why don't you talk a bit more about that yeah just a just a really brief aside i thought it was really interesting that this trial shows a lot about how sensationalism uh, sensationalism in the news evolved in the united states so the murders were so brutal and shocking that it completely rocked the population of fall river and part of the reason why we don't have like concrete evidence for these murders is that several thousand townspeople actually visited the crime scene they like traipsed all over the house during the course of the investigation which completely contaminated evidence i mean obviously we didn't have things like you know dna testing or anything like that but you know having Several thousand people traipsed through a murder scene. Not going to be great for the investigation. The actual trial was like nothing anyone had ever seen before. The courtroom was basically a circus. It was filled to the brim with press and spectators, and a lot of elements of the trial were pretty performative. When the prosecution actually, like, revealed the skulls of Abby and Andrew, everyone gasped and Lizzie fainted at the sight of them and actually didn't come to for several minutes. An article, a source written by an author, Yuko, says that Lizzie's is one of the first trials in American history that both fueled and was fueled by major mass market newspapers and magazines. Moreover, she was a media sensation because her trial exposed the sleazy shortcomings of high society, delighting the poorer masses. Newspapers would even, like, take liberty when reporting the facts. They editorialized a lot. Like, they basically noted every single one of Lizzie's moves in the courtroom. So, like, if it was a slow news day, they might comment that Lizzie was yawning or looking bored during the trial, thinking that, like, oh, maybe a woman exhibiting boredom by such a gory event might be capable of murder. So a lot of, how could all of this be happening? Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine what this would have been like with, like, modern technology right? to, like, spur all of that. All right. So that brings us to the idea of, like, other suspects and did anyone else have a motive? I mean, there were other people 
potentially around, though they may not have had good motives. Emma wasn't. She was away from home, so she was never suspected. The brother of Andrew's first wife, Sarah, one John Morris, had been staying with them. He was the bed in the guest bedroom that the Abbey was making up was from him staying there. He left about 8.45 to go purchase a pair of oxen and visit his niece in Fall River. So he was around. Not as much of a motive, but he was there. This was one of my favorite theories because it sounds so absurd. Oh, yeah. There are theories that, and supposedly evidence somewhere... That Andrew Borden had, like, a secret illegitimate son named William who, like, confessed to murdering his father and stepmother years later while he was, like, cleaning his axe and, like, talking to it. (laughs) And some person, like, overheard it. According to this source, like, Lizzie knew about it but kept quiet so that she could get her inheritance early. Yeah. Which is just, like, (laughs) what a weird, like, secret crazy son who's, like, confessing Mm -hmm. the murders to, like, his axe in the woods in a creepy way. Yeah, this this actually comes from the book, like, was it, like, Lizzie Borden, The the Trial, The Truth, and The Final Chapter, Um, which I actually picked up from the library, but I didn't get a chance to read. But, yeah, pretty ridiculous. (laughs) Right. The thing is, like, I bet that this is my thought when I was after listening to everything, especially like I was so I was so like cranky after reading everything about Victorian (laughs) society and all the bullshit about like women not being capable of violent murder. I was just like, I hope she did it. I hope she did it just to like spite stupid Victorian sensibilities. Like maybe it makes me a terrible person, but I was sitting there being like, you go, girl. Yeah. Yeah. You (laughs) prove to them. You prove to them that like middle class women are capable of violent murder, which is a horrible thing to say. But also, that's just how much I hate the patriarchy. <laughs> Transgressing gender norms through violent murder. Yay! Be gay, gay crimes. crimes. Um, <laughs> and so then, yeah, so there's also another quite sapphic theory for motive, which we'll get into in our next section of why do we think they're gay. We know you've been listening for an hour, but I promise we will get to the gay stuff soon. But um, we will. You know, we're, we're getting there now a little bit with a little summary of Lizzie's later life. So... After the acquittal, Lizzie and Emma inherited a significant portion of Andrew's estate, which, as Gretchen mentioned earlier, allowed them to purchase a home and live together. So they bought a new house in the Hill neighborhood, which Lizzie ended up naming the house Maplecroft. And attempting to put the past behind her, Lizzie actually began going by Lizbeth and signed every correspondence going forward as Lizbeth A. Borden. And their new home was down the street from the wealthiest family in Fall River, the Braytons, and she was, again, determined to become part of the more elite community. However, even though Lizzie had been acquitted by the courts and was free, her reputation never quite recovered. She was still considered guilty by many of her neighbors and never enjoyed acceptance in the community. She was completely ostracized. People refused to sit near her at church. Her friends abandoned her. Neighborhood children would ding-dong ditch in the middle of the night and then throw, like, gravel and eggs at the house. Her reputation also took another hit when, again, she was accused of shoplifting in 1897. You know, old habits die hard, I guess. She ended up, like, signing a quick confession. It was settled, like, very quietly. Lizzie developed, you know, in her later life, only a few acquaintances, but social occasions most always took place within the safety of her home. The sisters installed locks on their doors and bars on their windows and never even kept them open, even in the hottest of weather. And then here's where we get to some some fun stuff we're going to talk about. So Emma abruptly moved out of the house in 1905 after an argument over a party that Lizzie had thrown for her close friend. Nance O'Neill. More on this. And the sisters remained estranged for the rest of their lives, and the rest of Lizzie's life was isolated and lonely. She died of pneumonia at age 67 on June 1st, 1927 in Fall River after a year of illness following the removal of her gallbladder. Her funeral details were not published and only a few attended. Nine days later, her sister Emma died in a nursing home in New Hampshire. The sisters were buried side by side in the family plot next to Abby and Andrew in Oak Grove Cemetery. 
Lizzie left $30,000, which is about half a million dollars now, to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, and $500, which is about $900 today, to the perpetual care of her father's grave, plus $6,000 each to a cousin and a friend. And at last, finally, we come to why do we think they're gay? The reason you've been listening this whoa, whole time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So, theory slash evidence the first. An affair with Bridget Sullivan, the Irish live-in maid. Ah! <gasps> Scandal! Scandal! Um, so, yeah. So, among the various theories about who killed Abby and Andrew and the motive for the murders is the theory that Lizzie and Bridget were actually carrying on a secret sapphic affair and being found out by Abby caused them to commit the murders together or alternatively that Lizzie did it and Bridget helped cover up. This theory, to be honest, is mostly fictional and not backed up by any concrete sources, which I was a little disappointed about. Like much of the legend of the murders, it's hearsay and conjecture. It actually originates from uh, a man named Evan Hunter, also known under his crime fiction nom de plume Ed McBain. He was a mystery. He was a mystery author and a screenwriter, and he wrote a book in 1984, Lizzie, which was a fictional novel, but was based on and used a lot of the actual language and facts from the trial. He elaborated on this theory in a 1999 interview, which I tried so hard to find, and it's not available online anywhere, and I'm really sad. But so he basically suggested that Abby caught Lizzie and, Be and Bridget in bed together and reacted with horror and disgust, prompting Lizzie to kill Abby with a candlestick. And then when Andrew returned and Lizzie confessed to him what happened, she, quote, killed him in a rage with a hatchet when he reacted exactly as Abby had. McBain speculated that Bridget then disposed of the hatchet afterwards. And so <laughs> while the book is fiction, McBain uses, like I said, you know, much of the actual factual language from the inquest, the inquest and the trial materials, albeit novelizing and taking artistic license with certain narrative elements. So, you know, this is like fictional, but I just I really, this book is ridiculous. And in it, Lizzie has, I mean, I just, you have to listen to this little excerpt because it's the, it's the most hilarious thing. So here's a lovely little excerpt from this. Maggie turned swiftly to look at the clock. There's time, she whispered. But it's almost 9.30. There's yet time, Maggie said urgently. And Mr. Borden, are you not fearful of his return? He'll be at the bank, his banks. We've time yet. Then it shall be now, of course, Lizzie said, and again smiled. Yes, now, Maggie said. Will you not ask for it then? Yes, now. I want it. <laughs> then ask your mistress puss politely, Lizzie said. Yes, please. Am I not your mistress, then? Oh you gosh. are. Yes, you know you are. Then can you not address me as... Mistress Puss, yes. Please, Mistress Puss, she said, and reached out to pull Lizzie to her. Lizzie, is that you? Mrs. Vorden's voice, on the landing outside. Lizzie? Both women sat immediately upright, footsteps approached the door. The door opened. <laughs> it's so great! <laughs> oh my god. So... Mistress Puss. It's the best. Um, so yeah, so so McBain asserted throughout the years that his theory regarding Lizzie's lesbianism, quote, should be taken as part of the fiction. However, he noted that it was not an entirely unsupported conjecture. In the afterword of his book, he notes that at the turn of the century, a man who was divorcing his wife on charges of lesbianism named one Lizbeth A. Borden of Fall River as correspondent, and the judge ultimately dismissed the charges as frivolous. While this theory doesn't have much merit, and the story of Bridget and Lizzie being caught in flagrante delicto is one of fiction, there were actual rumors and some evidence during Lizzie's later life of potential lesbianism, which is primarily what inspired McBain's theory upon which he based his book. Which leads us to Theory Evidence the Second, Lizzie's relationship with Nance O'Neill. 
While living with Emma at Maplecroft, as discussed previously, Lizzie did not meet many new acquaintances due to her ostracization in Fall River community, and it seemed that Emma and Lizzie, quote, would have ended up as spinsters living the rest of their lives together in mutual seclusion. But this arrangement ended with the inclusion of Nance O'Neill, and this is according to the History Goddess. While traveling to New York and Boston, Lizzie met Nance O'Neill, 1874 to 1965, a glamorous stage actress, and was immediately taken with her. Nance was acknowledged in theater circles as a lesbian, and the nature of her and Lizzie's relationship is certainly open to interpretation. O'Neill was described as deep-voiced woman who remained single well into her 40s. She was well-known for playing tragic leading lady roles. Magda had a Gabler, Lady Macbeth, Camille, Parthenia, etc. A review from 1904 describes her as, quote, a graceful leopard-like creature whose motions suggest the sweep of William Blake's wonderful lines. Her voice has every modulation, every variety, sweet, low, and musical, rich, deep, and vibrant. Unquote. Glamour, glamour. Glamour, glamour. Glamour, glamorous lesbian. Famous glamorous lesbian. So, so having struggled with financial problems for a long time, Lizzie actually offered Nance opportunity for a comfortable lifestyle. You know, now we've got like Lizzie giving somebody else the opportunity to live comfortably. Lizzie, quote, seemed willing to support her in a lifestyle she preferred. And for a time, Nance made her permanent home with Lizzie. The two became incredibly close, and for all intents and purposes, Lizzie was smitten with Nance. She was even reportedly writing a play for Nance. <laughs> Emma did not approve of their relationship, and soon it seemed that the house was not big enough for the three of them. And so, like I mentioned before, Emma moved out in 1905, and the actual details of that are that Lizzie had thrown a lavish party and midnight entertainment for Nance at Maplecroft, and apparently that was Emma's last straw. Emma refused to discuss the matter, which furthered speculation. Uh, in a later interview with the Boston Sunday Herald, Emma said, quote, The happenings at the French Street house that caused me to leave, I must refuse to talk about. I did not go until conditions became absolutely unbearable. Then, before taking action, I consulted the Reverend A.E. Buck. After carefully listening to my story, he said it was imperative that I should make my home elsewhere. I do not expect ever to set foot on the place while she lives. That, uh... That's something. That's pretty telling. That's pretty telling. Yeah. Essentially, Emma reached her limits when she realized Lizzie wasn't getting rid of Nance. And even with the priest scandalized, she flew the coup. And so I found a couple of newspaper articles that reported on Emma's moving out because everybody loves gossip. And so I'm going to use my best old timey newscaster voice. Yes. So the Boston Sunday Herald, June 3rd, 1905. After repeated disagreements, Lizzie A. Borden and her sister, Emma Borden, have parted company. Several days ago, Miss Emma packed up her belongings, called a moving wagon, and shook the dust of the French Street home where they have lived together ever since the acquittal in the famous murder trial from her feet. Ever since the departure, the tongue of gossip has been wagging tremendously, even for Fall River, which is saying a great deal. All sorts of reasons for the quarrel between the sisters have been afloat, but the best-founded ones involve the name of Miss Nance O'Neill, the actress. Ooh. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. I watch a lot of Legend of Korra. I was going to say, that sounds exactly like Shira Shinobi from Legend of Korra. (laughs) So then we have the San Francisco Call, Volume 8, Number 7, on June 7th, 1905. Sisters estranged over Nance O'Neill. Her entertainment causes quarrel between Lizzie and Emma Borden. Special dispatch to the call. Fall River, Massachusetts, June 6th. The separation of Lizzie and Emma Borden of this city has aroused no little attention in this community, owing to the notoriety attained by the sisters 13 years ago when Lizzie A. Borden was acquitted after a long and sensational trial for the murder of her father and mother. 
It was impossible to get a statement from Lizzie Borden regarding the quarrel with her sister, but the trouble originated from some disagreement during the winter after Lizzie Borden had given a dinner and entertainment at the Borden home to Nance O'Neill and her company. Lizzie Borden is an intimate friend of Miss O'Neill, whose friendship she is said to have formed last summer at a summer resort near Boston. On the night of entertainment for Miss O'Neill, the company was playing at the Academy of Music in this city, and at the close of the performance, Miss Borden's carriage was waiting at the stage door, and Miss O'Neill was taken to the Borden home, where the entire company later gathered. Later in the season, Miss O'Neill and her company came here again, and Miss Borden again entertained the actress at her home, this time alone and quietly, as Miss O'Neill was ill at the time from overwork. Emma Borden had several times reproved her sister of her frivolity. It is reported that Miss Lizzie Borden is to write a play for Miss O'Neill, but Miss Borden declines to either affirm or deny the rumor. Sure. So there you have it. Those two articles tell me everything I need to know. Yeah. The, yeah, sure. You're ill and overtired. You just want a private party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so those are some good reasons why we think Lizzie is gay. And then, of course, we have the fact that Lizzie was an unmarried woman over 30. A spinster, as we have mentioned several times. A label which had its own assumptions and a queer history to it. Which leads us to our word of the week. Spinsters. Yeah, eventually we're actually going to do an entire episode on spinsters. So this is pretty much just going to be like a brief overview. And we will definitely dig into this later because it is, it's a big topic to talk about. So currently the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines spinster as, quote, an unmarried woman and especially one past the common age for marrying. But how did we get there? The origins of the term spinster are actually pretty innocuous. It just dated back to before the industrial age, industrial age and denoted women who literally spun wool, which eventually like evolved to refer to women who lived an unmarried life. By the 17th century, spinster was being used in this in actual legal documents to refer to an unmarried woman, and it was in common use by the 1800s, specifically including women who deliberately chose not to marry. Which like makes sense when you have like the choice not to marry makes sense in Victorian society, especially when you know it allowed space to having a prosperous life independent from, you know, father or husband. Yeah, and initially the connotation of spinster, you know, nowadays we think of it as like old maid, but initially it didn't have a negative a negative association with it. So Jackie M. Blount calls spinsters, quote, gender transgressors, marking them as women who were able to live independent and autonomous lives. Autonomous lives. They were hired specifically because of their singleness, which, you know, spinsters, the spinning wool uh, women, you know, go, dates back to the Middle Ages. And so hired specifically because of their singleness, they were at first considered, quote, high-minded, upstanding pillars of the community and were essentially cultural icons. And like Gretchen was saying before, when we did our social and cultural context, because Victorian society was so segregated in terms of gender, it was acceptable for men and women to live separate lives, and therefore, quote, these spinsters could live in a culture where they worked amongst other women. They were doctors, nurses, or teachers, and they spent their whole careers with other women doing good for society. It was possible to develop this women-only sphere where many spinsters had the possibility of creating lives full of dignity. Right, that idea of, like, the Protestant nun, like, the, mm -hmm. like, virtuous single woman who is dedicating her lives to helping others was, like, a, a role that one could fill 
ideal in that society. And then we also have, you know, there's a pretty queer interpretation of spinsters, even outside of just the fact that they were unmarried women. So an asexual writer, Daria Kent, writes that historians have suggested the possibility that spinsters were asexual, bisexual, lesbians, transgender, or some combination of the aforementioned by today's standards. Spinsters, quote, were seen as queer not because they were not wives or mothers, but because they wanted to go into the public sphere and to break the gender boundaries between the private and the public. They really wanted to break some fundamental gender roles, and consequently, they were seen as a threat to the established gender order. The spinster was a queer identity not only because of her lesbian potential, but her gender nonconformity. Her mere existence challenged perceptions of gender. So spinsters refused to stand inside their expected role of procreating women. And this is actually what essentially turned the tide in the attitude towards them when it came to, you know, the the kind of turn of the century. Yeah, because at the turn of the 20th century, they came under fire as, you know, studies of sexuality blossomed. Um, admiration turned into villainization as women were forced to defend their single status in a workplace that once welcomed them. And while the popularity of flappers and attitudes towards sexual liberation, spinsters became known as prudish and old-fashioned, especially those who had clung to beliefs of social purity activism. So, like, as sexuality is getting to be more open, this kind of, like, morally pure woman who devotes her single life to helping others comes under fire from what would have been perceived as like more liberated women who are saying like, oh, you're just a prude. And, you know, I actually believe in like sexual liberty. And, you know, with the popularity of Freud and Havelock Ellis's ideas about women's sexuality and its, you know, complementary nature to heterosexual man, (laughs) quote, spinsters failed to adhere to this new narrow vision of what a woman should be as it was defined by men. So once you start defining sexuality in terms of, like, heterosexuality as, like, women are, like, a complement to male sexuality or an accessory to male sexuality, then suddenly women who uh, do not fit that mode suddenly become villainized because, hey, guess what? They are not fitting the idea of, like, a woman should be an accessory to a man's sexuality. And then in recent times, I really love this, uh, the title of spinster has actually been embraced and reclaimed by feminists. Yay. Sheila Jeffries defines spinsters in her 1985 book simply as, quote, women who have chosen to reject sexual relationships with men. Uh, so lots of room for lesbianism, asexuality interpretations, a whole bunch of things. It's It brings me back to the ideas that... Um, Judith Bennett posited about, you know, women in women-only societies in the Middle Ages, right? Like, the very presence of women in women-only communities being a queer ideal because it is the absence of men. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then we have a, we have a lovely little asexual aside. We want to go far, far more into detail with this when we actually do an episode on spinsters. But I will say there's a really great article. We quoted Daria Kent up above. She wrote an article called Early Asexual Feminists, the Asexual History of Social Purity Activists and Spinsters, which we'll link to in the show notes. But essentially, she talks about how many spinsters were a part of the social purity movement or temperance activism. And this could be seen as a precursor to asexual activism and identity. The movement was based in a relatively asexual framework, arguing that, quote, sex was not a human necessity. They did things like campaigning for raising the age of consent, which they actually succeeded in. They raised it to the age of 16. They wanted to end lawful sex work, which, you know, problematic, but okay. And they wanted specifically to end sexual violence against women in addition to wanting to change perceptions of gender roles. And so a lot of the ideals that they had about relationships without sex and emotion-based connections with other people 
can be seen in many ways as a precursor to the way we think about modern asexual relationships, which, you know, I just wanted to give that little tidbit of information, but we plan to do a whole big topic about the sapphic history as well as the asexual history of spinsterhood. Because, yeah, those are two important strands. They're not, it's not just one or the other. They kind of, they sit together, which is really interesting. So, yeah, that's a that's a great way to kind of conclude our discussion of why we think Lizzie Borden might be gay. So before we move on into how gay were they, we're going to do our fun little pop culture tie in. There's a okay, so there are (laughs) shit ton of like books, plays, movies, TV shows, like podcasts, like so much stuff has been done about Lizzie Borden, as we said. So we just kind of wanted to like hit a couple of our highlights. My highlight in the realm of plays and musicals is that there is a 1990 Lizzie the Musical, which is a rock opera <laughs> by Tim Maynard, Stephen Cheslick DeMayer, and Alan Stevens Hewitt, which has been called a, quote, gothic rock ritual with a riot girl attitude by the New York Times. And the Village Voice describes the musical as lush tunes with that wretch, sex, rage, dyke, heat, misanthropy, and incest, which just like... Hello. Dyke heat. Dyke heat. Like, hello, where has this musical been all my life and why haven't I seen it yet? I actually, I think it's still running. Yeah, I think so. Like off Broadway or something. And uh, like, you can actually go to the website and listen to some of the music. And it is ridiculous. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So there, there were other, you know, there are other plays and even a full opera. But there's also a lot of film and television adaptations. There's a 1975 ABC television film starring Elizabeth Montgomery as Lizzie and Finola Fla- F- F- Fionola, I don't know how to pronounce that, Fionola Flanagan as Bridget. And fun fact, it was actually discovered after Elizabeth Montgomery's death that she was actually Lizzie Borden's sixth cousin once removed. How fitting. And then, you know, there's there's my my lovely favorite one, which is the 2014 Lifetime film. Lizzie Borden took an axe, which is starring Christina Ricci. Oh my god, pretty crazy! And then we have our our lovely uh, movie that Lizzie. quote unquote just came out. <laughs> which she, which she, like when you were describing that that fictional novel, it sounds like this movie mm-hmm. seems to be pretty heavily based off of like the fictional novel of because it's it revolves around Lizzie and Bridget's sapphic connection. So yes. yeah, seems pretty gay. Seems pretty gay. There's a bunch of other stuff. My favorite in the like other category is that there's a series of books by the late Richard Behrens called uh, Lizzie Borden Girl Detective, which is like a series of fictional stories where like young Lizzie Borden solves crimes. And I just I find it utterly delightful that that is a thing that exists. So good job, mm-hmm. Richard Behrens. That's yeah, <laughs> that's great. So we'll link to a bunch of the We'll put a bunch of stuff in the show notes and link to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that brings us to how gay were they? Uh, actually, there's there's one thing that I wanted to mention uh, before we finish up our pop culture tie-in that I forgot to put in our our outline. But there is a, a woman who is a theater director and playwright who actually wrote a play about Nance and Lizzie, which oh. I've forgotten the name of it right now. And I will look it up and we will put it in our show notes. But that's another fun one. She's, she's one that uh, she's a, a scholar who described Nance O'Neill as an outrageous lesbian. So there mm. we go. But yeah. With that. How gay were they? Lee, Lee, how how gay do you think Lizzie Borden was? You know, if we're if we're simply talking about the speculation that Lizzie and Bridget had an affair, I, you know, I got to go pretty low on this one. I I have to give it a 5 out of 10 hatchets. I had always heard that there were like sapphic elements to the story and was slightly disappointed that it was to find out that it was just 
like pretty much made up by a dude in a fictional book. And I was, I was, you know, getting kind of worried when I was doing our research, like, oh shit, is there, is there not really that much merit to this? Oh no. <laughs> but then when we take into account Lizzie's extremely too gay to function attitude towards Nance O'Neill and the like very queer nature itself of spinsterhood, I up this gay quotient to eight out of 10 wax. You know, I can't go, I can't go like, a full 10. There's still too much hearsay, conjecture, mythology to know things for sure. But good lord, am I excited to see Kristen Stewart and Chloe Sony get sapphic and murderous. So I'm excited about the return of one of my murder wives yes. in my life. Yeah, you know, I'm with you on that. Though I, I mean, I might even go lower for Bridget just because I think there's so little to base it on. Mm-hmm. Like it really does seem to be just like pure speculation that like... It's one of those things where if we didn't know what we knew about, or if we didn't have the story of Nance O'Neill, I don't think anyone would be like, oh, oh, they probably were having an affair. Yeah, I might even go lower and do like a like a three out of ten labrises for for Bridget, but I'm totally with you on the eight out of ten for Nance O'Neill because, mm-hmm. I mean, the kind of thing that would make your sister leave your house forever and not come back. <laughs> Yeah, and consult the reverend before doing so. That's not just, I don't like my sister staying up too late partying with her friends. Yeah. There's there's something, yeah. That's yeah, there's something else there. Suspicious. Also, like, the fact that Lizzie was writing a play for Nance. And I mean, you know, throughout her life, she's described as being relatively socially awkward, not very good with making friends, and then suddenly she has this intimate friend. Who okay. is known for being a lesbian. Like, that's Who? the other part of it, too, is, like, Nance yeah. O'Neill is, like, a raging lesbian, so... There you go. Yeah, that that seems pretty... Pretty gal pally. <laughs> I tried so hard to find... Like any sort of concrete shred of evidence to there to there being anything to the Bridget and and Lizzie thing because that's always kind of where I heard that I hadn't even really known about Nance O'Neill before looking into this and I was very surprised to find out like oh this is from a novel oh okay I mean that being said it's a pretty great theory it's yeah. based on you know some reality and from the excerpt that I read <laughs> pretty ridiculous I have this book. <laughs> I searched for, you know, I didn't get a chance to read it, but I searched for a good section, and boy, howdy, did I find it. Oh my gosh, yeah. Mistress Puss. Mistress Puss. If I were to ever become, like, a performer of some kind... I would I would make that my stage name. Mistress Puss. Mistress Puss. I mean, you know, we had we had Virginia Woolf and and you know, the massive pussy fur. Now yep. we have Mistress Puss. It's pretty yep. great. Yeah. So with that, that's it for today's episode. You can find us online individually. You can talk to us on the internets. Uh, Gretchen, where can people hit you up for lovely discussion? Well, when I am not discussing uh, sapphic murder wives, I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling. Currently, right now I'm doing a bunch of A Song of Ice and Fire analysis in the Twitteros and reviewing Winona Earp for thefandamentals.com and my personal website, gnellis.com. Or you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr as at gnelliswriter. What about you, Lee? So when I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks and uh, shipping three slightly crazy women from the past, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV and raging about politics and other lovely such things over at 
a paradox in flux on Twitter and running around and doing fun things like guesting on other people's podcasts, fun things like that. I will be on an episode of Cults, Cryptids, and Conspiracies that's going to be really fun. I'm going to be talking about uh, the time the Pentagon tried to create the gay bomb. So stay, stay <laughs> tuned awesome. for that. Or or alternatively, you know, listen to it already if it's out. I'm not sure. Again, we're recording this in the past. <laughs> Coming to you from the past. History's Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History's Gay Podcast, Twitter at History's Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at historiesgaypodcast.com. And if you are enjoying the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you will get access to things like Sappho Salon minisodes, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up on the show, and many, many more exciting, exciting things that you get at different contribution tiers. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our patron community, along with the amazing... Ash! Bradley, Alejandro, Cerberus, Abigail, Tara, and Jessica. And if you did not hear your name, stay tuned. We're getting through our first big crop of wonderful backers. Uh, And so thank you all for your support. We couldn't do this without you. This is going to allow us to grow the podcast. And we are so thankful to have an awesome community. If you're a patron, go on there. Uh, We set up a lovely little post for y'all to introduce yourselves. Start talking. Have a good conversation. We want this to be a fun place for you. Yes. Yes, you can also buy awesome merch at our new History is Gay store. Woohoo! Click on shop on our website and you can find t-shirts, hoodies, a tote bag, and we've got more designs coming soon, so stay tuned for that. Lastly, uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show and we can continue to expand this awesome community. So, that's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Thank you.